Thank you, Dan. Thank you very much, brother. It is an honor and it is a privilege to be here uh, for this special time in the life of Calvary Bible Church. And uh, I am just simply honored and privileged uh, to share this with you. And uh, I'm just tickled. I really am. On the drive over here this morning after he picked up Dorothy and I, he said, just don't say anything about me. Just get up there and preach the word. And so I am going to obey my brother. And uh, should I say anything? <laughs> I'll say this. Uh, statistics say that pastors only survive a church for three to five years. 25 years, beloved. 25 years and counting. And, you know, it's not just the 25 years. But it's 25 years of consistently, habitually, over and over again, preaching the Word of God, preaching sound doctrine, refuting false doctrine when it comes, seeing people come and go. But we do that because Jesus says, I will build my church. And the tool which we as preachers and pastors are to use to do just that is the Word of God. So let me ask you right now to open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 1, 20 verses. I usually don't preach through 20 verses in one sermon, but we're going to attempt this morning. But I would like for you to stand with me together at the reading of God's Word while I read it aloud. Please stand together at the reading of God's Word. 1 Timothy chapter 1, all 20 verses. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, according to the commandment of God our Savior, of Christ Jesus, who is our hope. To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urge you upon my departure for Macedonia, remain on in Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies, which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. But the goal... The goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. For some men straying from these things have turned aside to fruitless discussion, wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they do not understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, realizing the fact that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers and immoral men and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who has strengthened me, because he considered me faithful, putting me into service. Even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. Yet for this reason I found mercy, 
so that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honored in glory forever and ever. Amen. This command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you fight the good fight, keeping faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, so that they will be taught not to blaspheme. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, thank you for the wonderful, life-giving words that have come from you. They're inspired for your glory and for our good. They bring us closer to you. They open up our minds to the glory and the splendor of Christ. They teach us how to live for him. They teach us how to, to protect the gospel. They teach us how to interact with the world around us. But Lord God, here we get a glimpse of the Apostle Paul himself and his personal relationship which he had with Timothy. And we learn that amidst of that, that Paul showed great transparency when he said, I am the chief of sinners. I am the sinner most of all. And that's the apostle saying that, Lord, how much more should we? So God, take this feeble and frail sinner. Take my mouthpiece and make it yours. Jesus Christ, Jesus, be, be exalted today. Not just through the preaching of your word, but in the hearts of your people. And may we walk out with a greater Savior than we came here with. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you so, so much. Paul's intent in this passage is to motivate and encourage Timothy to move forward in ministry, particularly in the ministry of the Word. Okay, And what we're going to do this morning as I go on in the sermon is show you it just doesn't apply to the preacher, the pastor, but it applies to a Sunday school teacher, a small group leader. It applies to the husband and wife as they minister the Word of God in their homes with their children and with one another. It also applies in the friendships that you have with one another when you meet over coffee, when someone asks your opinion about what you think of things. May it be that our opinions have been shaped with the Word of God, so that it goes forward even in a conversation over coffee or lunch. Now, I want to go over the outline real quick with you, and it's in your bulletin. There's four points to be said here. First of all, Paul reminds Timothy of his affections for him, and we're going to see in a moment why that is so, so important. Number two, Paul exhorts Timothy to confront false teachers, that is not an easy thing to do because in this context, these false teachers are part of the church. So the people that you know, they're people that other people know. And so it's not that easy as it seems on the surface. Number three, Paul shares his own perspective as a minister. He's being transparent in verses 12 through 17 because he's called to the ministry of the word. It's so easy for one to become very prideful in ministry. But what one must, be, re, must consider all the time in ministry now, no matter how old one gets, is to remember from whence they came. Amen. And that's what Paul does in that passage. And finally, in verses 18 through 20, Paul charges Timothy to enter into battle. 
This, folks, is spiritual warfare. To hold up the truths of God's word is spiritual battle, spiritual warfare. But I want you to notice one thing in these four points. Notice the weaving between Paul's personal care and concern for Timothy with the charge of ministering the word. Point number one and three are woven into the charge. And so I want to look at point number one, verses one and two. He reminds Timothy of his affections for him. He basically gives a description, a brief description of his relationship with Timothy. It's important to realize that Paul begins with more than just the average greeting or welcome. In verses 1 and 2, he conjoins his apostolic authority with his personal relationship. He's saying, I'm not just your apostle. I not only carry with me the authority of an apostle or pastor, but I want you to know something, Timothy. I am your close friend. But it's not just a friend here. Notice what it says in verse 2. To Timothy, my true child. That's beautiful. Do you have someone in Christ that you have invested in to the point where you can look at them with the affections of a father or or as a mother, because you've poured into them. So when it comes to charging men and women to, 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 to minister the Word of God to other people, it's not just a charge. It's couched with affections and love that a father has for a son or a mother or a daughter. In other words, what he writes as an apostle is written with the affections of a father. Oh, how does that apply today at our homes with our children? I was so prone back in the day to just tell my children what to do. Do this, don't do that. I charge you to do it this way, don't do it that way. And forget about the affections that they so needed from me. It's not just about preaching the Word. It's not just about ministering the Word of God. It's doing it with a certain attitude. It's doing it with a heart full of compassion and affection. Now, we know also in the study of Scripture that by the time of this letter, they have known each other. Paul and Timothy have known each other for about 15 years. 15 years. Timothy is first mentioned in Acts chapter 16, verses 1 and 2. Most likely, he came to faith in Christ under Paul's preaching back in Acts chapter 14. But by the penning of this letter, it's been 15 years. So Timothy had been with Paul for a long time, which means simply he accompanied him during at least the second missionary journey. So what did he see? Well, he had the privilege of watching Paul minister the gospel and interacting with people. He had the privilege of watching him pray and preach and teach one-on-one to counsel and to preach to crowds. He saw him under incredible pressure. He even most likely saw him suffer. I probably saw him cry at times. He might have saw him get frustrated. But he was there with Paul throughout. He accompanied Paul as he planted churches. So it was during this 15-year period that Timothy and Paul grew fond of one another. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17, by the way, Paul describes Timothy as my beloved and faithful child in the Lord. Later in Philippians chapter 2, verse 22, quote, he served with me in the furtherance of the gospel like a son serving his 
Father. Notice the language there. It's not a mistake. It's intentionally put there by the Holy Spirit as he moved Paul to write this down. So what is, what's the significance of all this? Well, here's the significance of verse 2 of these affections. Paul knows what he's getting ready to tell Timothy. He's getting ready to charge him with a difficult task. And so like a father does, he begins to push him. Uh, real quick, let me turn there. Notice 1 Thessalonians. In chapter 1 of Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians, Paul told, writes down how the gospel came to the church of Thessalonica. And it came with power. But in chapter 2, he expresses how he came to them. Notice what he says. Chapter 2, verse 1. For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. Notice this, our coming to you. So it's not just I preach the word. It's how I come to you with the word. <clears throat> Excuse me. And he goes on in verse 3. For our exhortation does not come from error or impurity but by, or by way of deceit. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. For we never, here's that word again, came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from men, from men, either from you or from others, even though as an apostles of Christ we might have asserted our authority. But we proved to be gentle among you. Here it is as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Here's the attitude upon which he came to the church. <clears throat> Excuse me. He didn't just come preaching and teaching. He came with an attitude. He came with a love. When he was preaching, he looked upon them with a heart full of compassion and affection. And so he was also tender with them. But notice what he says later on. Later on, verse 11. Just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children. Notice the difference between the mother and the father. Notice the mother is tender, but notice the father, he, he's an encourager. He pushes. I know you can do better. I know you can do this. I know it's going to be difficult. I know it's going to be, you're going to, it's going to be incredibly difficult for you. And there's going to be times that you want to quit, but I know as your father, I know you can do this. Be faithful. Do it, Timothy. So we see this unfolding here. This brings us back to our text as we look at verses 3 through 11. Verses 3 through 11. Paul charges or exhorts Timothy to, ex to confront the false teachers. Notice what he says first and foremost, verse 3, as I urge you. This is a strong urging. It's not like, I, I urge you. This is, I urge you, Timothy. You've got to stay there. You've got to remain there. There is a task to be done. And that's what he says. I urge you, as I urge you upon my departure from Macedonia, I want you to stay there. I want you to remain there on at Ephesus that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines. Why would he say this to Timothy? Why would he say, I don't want you to leave? Because Timothy was tempted to leave. It got tough. Maybe he wanted a fresh start as a pastor. Maybe, maybe he wanted to go to a place where his weaknesses were not so pronounced and so well known. Where he could start from scratch or start over again. 
But Paul says, stay there. And second of all, we see the charge in verse 3. Instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrine. He just didn't say deal with them. He said deal with them strongly. It's a significant part of ministering the Word of God. It's not only positive, but there's a negative aspect to it here. It means at times you have to correct, you have to rebuke, there's protection. There even might be excommunication, as we learn later on at the very end of this chapter. So the ministry of the Word is difficult, it is hard, it's not easy. And that's why Paul will end up in the last three verses telling Timothy to be strong. Keep the faith in a good conscience, fight the good fight. Fight. Why? Because it's spiritual warfare is involved. Now, real quick, who are these men? Verses 3 and 4 and 6 and 7 tell us a little bit about these men. And I'll be quick about this. They taught strange doctrines. The word strange in the Greek means different, foreign, unfamiliar. In other words, they were teaching things that Timothy was unfamiliar with because that wasn't what Paul was teaching me for those 15 years. And so these guys are doing something else here. It's contrary to what Paul was mentoring me with, the truths that he was saying. So now i got to go to these guys and tell them, stop it. That's not good. It's not healthy. Myths, endless genealogies is what they went with. To sum this up, it probably had some kind of form of Judaism mixed in with it. A a works-based, a works-oriented kind of belief. It says endless genealogies, and we know the Jews were really into genealogies. Their lineage to prove their right to something. And, of course, all this leads to speculations, which leads to assumptions. But notice verse 4 at the end. Rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. In other words, which is God's plan of salvation, preaching Christ. A sermon that leaves out Christ is not a sermon. A gospel without Christ is a false gospel. And so that's what works-based religion is. It's a Christless faith. And the church is not immune to it. Because it wasn't at the church at Ephesus. Because that's what Paul's addressing here with Timothy. In verse 5, I love verse 5. What Paul does in verse 5, he says, listen, remember our goal. These guys, these certain men, these guys have a different goal. But here is our goal, Timothy. What is it? But the goal of our instruction, the goal of biblical counseling, the goal of biblical preaching or expository preaching, the goal of the Sunday school teacher, the goal of the parent, the goal of fellowship. Whenever you're gathering around the Word of God, you to minister the Word of God, what is the goal of the ministry of the Word in whatever context we use it? It is this, love. Love. From a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. This is at the core of gospel preaching. What kind of love? The love of God, the love for Christ. That's how Paul started the letter. Jesus Christ is woven through the pages of this letter. He is the focus. For one to be born again is for one to fall in love with Christ for the first time. And so what is the preaching and the teaching of the Word of God do in whatever, whatever kind of context is to keep that love aflame and to mature it and to grow. I hope and pray that my love for Christ is bigger next week than it is this morning. Because, beloved, what happens? What's, what naturally takes place? 
when our love for Christ grows, our obedience follows. Fruit will be born, birthed, ripened. You see that? But notice where it comes from, a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Simply put, the word pure means free from filth, dirt, corruption, untainted. A heart absent of anything that doesn't belong. No impurities or anything that will weaken it. That's what it means, a pure heart. A good conscience is an awareness of right and wrong, as Calvin says. It's nothing else than integrity of the heart. Wow. The idea is this, as one is ministering the word, and what are the shape or form, whether it's over a cup of coffee, the counseling room, or preaching on a Sunday morning. Whenever you're ministering the word of God, one should not only strive to handle it accurately, but he should strive to deliver it with a good conscience because he's been striving to live it. So he should strive to deliver it with a good conscience, honest zeal, His life and conduct should be in harmony with what he preaches. That's why preachers hang on 1 John 1, 9. If you confess your sin, he's faithful and just to forgive you of your sin, to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. I don't know about you, but I know about me more than anybody else. My wife knows a little bit more. I know the Lord knows a whole lot more. But I don't go a week without sinning. Let me back up. I don't go a day without sinning. Maybe not just in action. But that's usually the case. In thought, motive, selfish desires, right? So that's why we want to be in the ministry of the Word. And the first and foremost thing I want is the Word to minister to me first before i got to deliver it, before I share it over a cup of coffee. Before the Sunday school teacher, as they're preparing their lesson, they're interacting with the Word of God because they're going to deliver it, but they want to do it with a good conscience. And then finally, sincere faith simply means the absence of hypocrisy, the absence of... What's the main idea here in verse 5? It's simply this. You can sum it up in one word, sanctification. Sanctification. That's what he's talking about here. That's the one word that expresses verse 5. The sanctification of the heart or the whole person. In other words, when the ministry of the Word of God has as its aim the heart, not behavior modification, but the heart, to the point where my faith is becoming more and more genuine and sincere because God is dealing with the whole person. Christianity is not conformity to outward symbols and signs and behaviors. It's the indwelling of the Holy Spirit to make that person alive in Christ so they fall in love with him, they fall in love with his word, and all of a sudden things are new. And so they want to devour God's word. They want to eat it up. They can't get enough because they know what the word of God will do to them first. It'll conform me to the image of Christ. And that's your call as a believer. That's the call of every Christian. Pure heart, good conscience, sincere faith. Whether it's expository preaching, biblical counseling, as I said, a Sunday school teacher, small groups, parents with their children, husbands and wives who are sitting 
in a restaurant eating with a brother or sister in Christ. The purpose of the ministry of the word from beginning to end is falling in love more and more with Jesus Christ. The more you're in love with Christ, the more the church will exalt him. The more the church exalts Christ, the more we fulfill what God, why God called us, why he saved us, to glorify him. You can't glorify God apart from exalting Christ. You just can't do it. You just can't do it. So let's go on. Let's go on. Verses 6 and 7, Paul tells us a little bit more specifically about these men who had drifted away. These men who have drifted away. For some men straying from these things have turned aside to fruitless discussion. They're bantering around theology. They're questioning things. Verse 7, they are wanting to be teachers of the law. Here he begins to narrow in a little bit more of what was going on here at the church in Ephesus that Timothy had to deal with and confront. There were people who wanted to be teachers and they were mishandling the word of God, which simply meant they were using it not for the reason why God gave it. God did not give us the law to make us good, beautiful, wonderful, holier-than-thou people. No, he gave us the law as a beam, as a light unto our soul to show it that my soul is dark and ugly and that I need Christ. And apart from Christ, I am condemned, sinner, destined for hell. Never be afraid to say that, particularly in our day and age. It is more and more unpopular, incredibly more and more unpopular. You know, when you hear the word hell in our society, people begin to shrivel back. Oh! Beloved, it's just as real as heaven. And part of gospel preaching is warning people of the judgment to come. You don't even want your worst enemy, this enemy, to spend a second in hell. It's nothing but torment and gnashing of teeth. It's absolute away from the presence of God in its entirety, with no hope, no chance whatsoever, apart from the glory and splendor of Christ. And you want to know what makes it even worse? Those who are, will be in hell one day will be confronted truly with Christ and who he is. They will see him for who he is in his glory and his majesty, and they will be made to bow down before him, Philippians chapter 2, and then, and then, beloved, they will be called and moved to where there is gnashing and weeping. Imagine that for a moment. I say this to stir our hearts towards evangelism. When we look at people, don't look at people as people, but as souls for whom Christ died. And, and, and so when you see that, you wouldn't wish this on anyone. Imagine someone seeing Christ for who he is at his second coming, and all of a sudden, they've got to be departed from him for all eternity. Wow. Let's move on. Verses 8, 9, 10, and 11. Paul goes on in this, in this charge or this description of these people. And he says, here's the purpose of the law, 8, 9, and 10. And he gives this laundry list, and it's not exhaustive. We read them earlier. But then we get to the end of verse 10. And he says this, and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching. Sound teaching. What is sound teaching? Let me give a couple 
points here. Number one, the word sound means pure. It's where we get the word hygienic from. Whole, pure, you know, the hygiene, okay? But that's the kind of doctrine, sound doctrine. But then let's take it a step further here. Second of all, it means that what you teach is in accordance with the glorious gospel. Notice verse 11, sound teaching. Verse 11, according to the glorious gospel. Who makes the gospel glorious? Jesus Christ. He is the gospel. The gospel is Christ. Listen, I hope that you just didn't enjoy a good message when you heard the gospel or that you trusted in a message because that message of the gospel points to the person of Jesus Christ. How many people in church today just like the idea of the message that Jesus Christ came to save me so I wouldn't go to hell instead of actually falling in love with the Savior? Beloved, there is a difference. There's a difference. So we see that we get an explanation of sound doctrine, not um, sound teaching or doctrine in verse 10 with the next verse, verse 11. The doctrine teaching is according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God. In other words, the sound teaching exalt Christ. Sound teaching will exalt Christ. It will point to Christ. It'll conform us to the image of Christ. It'll motivate us to worship Christ. That's sound teaching, because it's not man-centered, it's God-centered. And that's what Paul's reminding Timothy here in verses 11 and 12. Finally, sound doctrine is in alignment with the gospel message. Turn with me to just 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 3. A final thing here about sound doctrine, a little nugget here, verse 3. It promotes godliness. Sound teaching from the scriptures promote godliness or Christ-likeness. Chapter 6, verse 3, if anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those, what are sound words? Same Greek word there, sound. What are those words? Those of our Lord Jesus Christ and with the doctrine of the teaching conforming to godliness. You see that? Sound teaching, sound doctrine has as its Aim, a love for Christ, a love for his glory. That's why strange doctrine is so bad. That's why you've got to get rid of it. That's why Paul is charging him, you've got to get rid of this. I'm not asking you, I'm telling you. Because it will not promote godliness. You leave strange doctrine in the church for a long period of time, they will get their eyes off of Christ. They will not be his representatives on earth. They will be bad ambassadors. As a matter of fact, after a long period of time, unbelievers will creep in and be comfortable with what you're doing at church. Amen. Were you ever comfortable when you came to Christ? I was tremendously uncomfortable when I came to Christ because he dealt with my sin, and I didn't like it. But because of him, what I didn't like ended up me falling in love with him. And I began not to like it the way he doesn't like it. And that's tough. But you don't want anyone coming into church being comfortable with their sin. You want them to feel welcome. You want them to feel loved. So as you approach them with grace, you approach them with mercy. You approach them like Paul with Timothy with great affections and care. Because you're showing and demonstrating the love of Christ. But then eventually, in that 
and that acquaintance, you've got to begin to develop that relationship with that person. And somewhere along the line, you have to, I don't like to use the word, but confront them with the gospel. But you love on them first. You demonstrate the love of Christ first. You show that you care. And I believe that's exactly what Paul did with Timothy. And he continued that for years and years and years. I love what happens next in verses 12 through 17. Verses 12 through 17. How much time? Oh, we can slow down. Okay. (sighs) Let's go on. Verses 12 through 17. I love what Paul does here. He opens himself up to Timothy. I think Timothy already knew this. But but what Paul's going to say in verse 12, what he does say, he says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service. And what he says from 13, 14, and 15 is to to remind Timothy, I'm not boasting about myself. I'm not boasting. I'm not being arrogant here. The fact of the matter is, Christ strengthened me for service. And, and, and notice the, the sequence there. Notice the sequence in verse 12. Christ first gives him inner strength, okay, which resulted in Paul's what? Faithfulness. So when you talk about the, the, the pastor being faithful in the preaching of God's word, it obviously comes from who? Christ strengthening him. So what Paul is saying in these verses, he's reminding Timothy this. We can say it this way. It's all of grace. I can't boast in anything. Did God call me to preach the word? Yes. Did God call me to pastor? Yes. But it's not upon my strength that I do those things. It's all of grace. You see that? That's what Paul's doing in 12 through 17. As R.W. Stott writes about verse 12, it is striking that he refers to the inner strength Christ has given him before he specifies the ministry to which he was called. That's why we're in the Word of God. That's why you want to be in the Word of God, so that you can be strengthened, so that you can use the gift he has given you with strength and be faithful to whatever he's called you to do. This is not limited to a pastor This has application across the board to you, to the body of Christ. Because listen, you don't have to be in an official capacity to minister the Word of God. Oh, there are official capacities. There's the the pastor who preaches the Word of God. There's biblical counseling. People have been trained for that. Men and women have been trained. There's a Sunday school teacher. There's small group leaders. But beloved, putting all that aside, there's me and you in our homes. There's a husband ministering the Word of God to his wife, even a wife ministering the Word of God to her husband. There's mom and dad ministering the Word of God to their children. So what the principles here transcend to the home. There's you sitting down with somebody else here at Calvary Bible Church during the week over a cup of coffee or having lunch, and you're having fellowship. And because the Word of God has been ministered to you, you want to minister that Word to the person across the table from you. It's building up one another. It's encouraging one another. And it comes from affections that we have one towards another because we've been bought by Christ. I love what Paul says here. Look, we'll go on with these verses. Even though I was formerly a blasphemer, you see what he's doing here. He's thinking of the past now, from whence he came 
and a persecutor and a violent aggressor. He was an accessory to murder many, many times. He hated the church. He hated Christ. He had people thrown in the jail who he knew was going to end up dead. He says, I acted ignorantly in unbelief. I didn't know who Christ was when I was doing those things. You know that Paul was a Pharisee during the life of Jesus? Paul was out there doing his own thing. As we're reading the Gospels, somewhere out there is Paul being a Pharisee of Pharisees. Notice verse 14, and the grace of our Lord was more than abundant. Notice where Paul goes in verse 14, grace, grace. He's saying, Timothy, I know God's called me. I know God's strengthened me. I know that he called me into service. He found me faithful, verse 12, and he put me into service. But I want you to know this. It's all of grace. I'm not saying verse 12 out of, out of, out of arrogance or pride. I'm saying it with absolute humility. You know how we know this? Keep going. Look at verse 15. And it is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And here we go. Among whom I am, not past tense, present tense, foremost. Wow. Wow. So when I'm preaching the word of God to you, I must do it with utmost compassion and love and with this thought. Father, I'm probably a worse off sinner than all these folks I'm preaching to. Man. Man. What perspective. So preach the word with boldness, but yet tempered with humility. That can only be done by the work of the Spirit in our lives. That is not something we as people can conjure up. It is a gift of God. Now, I want you to see this. Verse 16, yet for this reason I found mercy, so that here's the purpose in me as the foremost of what? Sinners. And by the way, he just got done describing all these sin and sinners in verses 8 and 9. This is fresh on his mind as he's writing this. So when he says, I'm the chief of sinners, you go back up to verse 9 and read the list again. And he's mentioned in that list. He says at the very end of verse 9, for murderers. And I'm sure Paul would say, and there's other things in this list that describe me as well. So that in me, the foremost, Jesus Christ, notice the attention now. Notice he, he's preaching, he's describing to Timothy, he's encouraging him, and he kind of brings it home. And who's home other than Jesus Christ? So he's bringing this discussion back to Christ himself. For this reason I found mercy, so that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. If there's no other reason to be sanctified and set apart and made godly, it's for this reason right here. So I can be an example to the unbeliever that the Jesus Christ is alive the gospel is true, and it goes forth with power, and may I be an example of that. Wow. And, and look at the perfect patience. God, here's Paul doing his own thing during the life of Christ. And here's Jesus ministering to the disciples. Paul's just nowhere on the scene. He's just out of the picture. But he was not out of the eyes of God. 
That whole time, Paul was just being a Pharisee of the Pharisee, a Benjamite. He was just studying that law. He was doing the best he could. And then Jesus died. Then he was resurrected. Where's Paul? Nowhere to be found. But the church began to grow. Christ was exalted. The gospel spread. The rule and reign of Christ in the hearts of men and women and children began to go forth. The church is growing, and here comes along Paul, hating it every step of the way. But God. But God. It's called divine interruption. It's called sovereign grace. But God, rich in mercy, but God, rich in grace, struck him down on that road. And Paul never forgot it. Even years later, at the, near the end of his life, penning this letter, did not forget from whence he came. He could always look at the people he was preaching at, preaching at and preaching to and preaching for and say, but by the grace of God, there go I. And Paul is showing us here that it wasn't fake. This is not a fake humility. This is genuine and real and true. This is what's inside the back of the mind of the preacher, the Sunday school teacher, the small group leader, as they're leading in the ministry of the Word. That's in the back of their minds. And so they can distribute the Word of God in humility. But I love, can I say it enough? I love verse 17. What does Paul do here? He just breaks out in worship. Adoration. Have you ever done that in your quiet time? Maybe it's been dry for a couple weeks, and all of a sudden, you're, okay, Lord, I'm going to try it again. I'm going to personal discipline. I'm going to do this. It's not been good for a couple weeks. You know, I get a few things, but I hadn't really been moved. And all of a sudden, you're in the Word of God. And you're preparing maybe for a passage like this, and the tears start just flowing. And you break out in adoration and worship. Because the Spirit of God at that point is taking those wonderful living truths of God's Word, and He just implants it and embeds a little bit further in your soul and your heart, and you just break out in worship and in awe that you're saved. Have you ever been there? I hope you've been there. I hope you go there this week. I hope you're there a hundred thousand times during your walk with Christ. There's nothing more sweeter than that, is there? Oh, I love that. Now to the King, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. And notice he says, amen. He's just writing, and he's writing, and he remembers back. He's being transparent with Timothy. In the midst of encouraging him and charging him for this ministry, Paul's just saying transparently, I remember my past. And verse 12, by the way, when he says, he strengthened me, considered me faithful, putting me into service. What do you think he's doing with those, with those phrases? He's saying, Timothy, you too. Timothy, you too. Timothy, you too. You need to hear this. And Paul explains, I want you to know I'm not boasting here, 13, 14, 15, and 16. And all of a sudden, he just breaks out into worship. When you're in the Word of God for a while and it doesn't lead to worship, get on your knees and cry out to God. And say, God, help me worship you. God loves to hear it. He loves to hear those wonderful words from our lips. I love you. I adore you. I bow down before you. Here's my heart. I want to obey you today. I want to display you to anyone I come in contact today. You see, that's the purpose of sound doctrine. 
And that's why Paul's charging Timothy here, get rid of the strange doctrine. Because it will never lead to verse 17. Strange doctrine never leads to adoration and praise in the worship of Christ. And so we must get rid of it. The leaders must not tolerate it. They must spend many sleepless nights struggling whether they should deal with a doctrine or not, depending on how far to go with that person or people. Verses 18 through 20. Verses 18 through 20. Paul revisits his charge to Timothy. That's why I did this chunk. Okay, that's why he's this chunk of 20 verses. He gives the charge in verse 3. He kind of goes away from it a little bit, but it's not unrelated, obviously. But he comes back right to his charge in verse 18 when he says this. This command I entrust you. What command? The command of verse 3. As I urge you upon my departure from Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus so that you may instruct in certain men not to teach strange doctrines. So he's coming full circle here. You see that? And notice what he says, my son. Well, he's back at it again. He's saying this with affection. I know what I'm calling you to do. I know the task I'm calling you for, and it's going to be difficult. But I'm saying this not just with apostolic authority, but I'm saying this being your spiritual father. And I love you, and you need to do this. It's vitally important. You must address these men. Don't do this. Don't sweep it under the carpet. You've got to address it. Why? Because the glory of Christ is at stake. Sound doctrine does not exist for the sake of sound doctrine. If we think that, we miss the whole point. Sound doctrine exists and is, and is gone. It goes forth for the purpose of exalting Christ. He is the sound doctrine. So that's what Paul does here. This command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you. What prophecies? Chapter 4, verse 14. Do not neglect the spiritual gift within you, which was bestowed on you through the prophetic utterance with the laying on of hands by the presbytery. Today it would be ordination. When you ordain one to preach the gospel, they better be able to preach it accurately and defend it furiously. Amen. Defend it furiously. And not until we have absolute confidence in that man to do that should we ordain anybody. Because Christ's reputation is what we love. That's who the world needs. And so that's where Paul is going with this. But I notice in this charge to Timothy, he says, fight the good fight. Look at the end of verse 17. Fight the good fight. What is he saying here? He says, I'm calling you to enter into spiritual warfare. That's the language here. Fight the good fight. It's not going to happen just by sitting around doing nothing. You're not just going to run through a couple of hoops. You've got to fight. Now, how do you do that fight? How do you, how do you actually fight it? Verse 19, keeping faith in a good conscience. Keeping faith means to hold on to the faith, to hold on to sound doctrine with one hand and having a good conscience in the other. Here's a word picture for you. Preach sound doctrine, defend sound doctrine with the one hand, holding on to it, but with the other saying, I want my life to measure up to it. Good conscience again. You see that? That's the work of the preacher. It's the work of the Sunday school teacher, the small group leader, 
mom and dad at home when they're trying to live it out before their children, husbands and wives, friends, brothers in Christ, sisters in Christ over a cup of coffee. You're always in spiritual battle. You know, every time you're in the Word of God, the flesh is right there with you, kicking. It is with me anyway. Every step of the way. I love what he tells Timothy. This. It's not going to be easy. It's spiritual. I'm calling you to enter into battle. You fight not against flesh and blood, but the powers and principalities in the dark places that, are, that raise up all this junk against the glory of Christ. All these philosophies and theories about who they think Jesus is instead of who the Bible says he is and how the Bible tells us to live as followers of Christ. So keeping faith with a good conscience, sound doctrine in one hand, striving to live it in the other hand. And notice what he says next. Some have rejected and suffered shipwreck. Some in the church go AWOL. AWOL. They said, eh, sound doctrine's not that important but I still want to be a good person. I still want to be a church goer. But that's not the body of Christ. We are Christ's followers. Listen, beloved, and, and I know you know this, and I know Dan knows, I know the elders know this. There is a difference between a church being about itself and a church that is about Christ. There's a lot of churches today, I know this personally, and I see them all the time, that their churches exist for themselves. We want to grow so that we look good. We want our community to know that we're successful. That's not about Christ. It's about preaching truth. Truth matters. The gospel's alive. The word of God is living and sharper and active than any two-edged sword. It's the only offensive weapon that we have. But yet there were two men and that he mentions, because he says in verse 20, among these there were others, Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan. Paul basically says they have not repented. Obviously, Paul, I would think, have already talked to them by now, and they have not responded. So he hands them over. You need to get out of the body. You're, you're spreading strange doctrine, and your strange doctrine doesn't have verse 5 as the goal. You're not aiming. You're not aiming whatsoever at love from a pure heart and good conscience and sincere faith. You're aiming at yourself. You want to be a teacher of the law for you to look good. You're self-centered in your teaching, not Christ-centered. And that's exactly what Paul is charging Timothy to deal with. And Timothy is not an evangelist roaming around. He's a pastor of a church. Wow. And 2,000 years later, it's no different. So I praise God for men who go before, men who go after, who hold the torch of the gospel accurately and faithfully at Calvary Bible Church. What a blessing to my heart and to my soul. You know, Hymenaeus and Alexander turned their back on God. How'd they do it? By turning their back on sound doctrine and godliness. And say, Paul is saying, Timothy, you must address these men. It is your duty. Don't allow people to take portions of Scripture and mishandle them and misuse them. And the illustration is simply the law. The law was not given to make you a good group of people. 
to show you how really ungood you are. Is that a good word? It's to show you how desperate you are as a sinner and in need of God's grace. And you have to go to a person to find God's gift because that gift is Christ. If you want to be loved of God, go to Christ because in Christ is the love of God. The world will tell you you can go all sorts of places to find the love of God. But the Word of God says there's only one person you go to to find the love of God. Romans chapter 8 is Jesus Christ. So finally, these are the reasons why we teach and preach. We counsel the Word of God, whether whatever the venue, Sunday school, teacher at home. And I didn't want to leave anybody out because we're all, in a sense, ministers of the Word, particularly in the home. So I want you to apply this to your lives as well. This is why we strive to handle it accurately. We bring it to bear in our own lives first because of what it does. And we know it results in a greater love for Christ, a deeper, richer, a deeper and richer worship of Christ. It produces discernment, produces gratitude, service, humility, all demonstrated by Paul in worship and the furtherance of his kingdom. This is why we do it as pastors, Sunday school teachers, friends, parents, small group leaders, whoever you are as a Christian. Don't just teach it. Don't just talk about it. Talk about how to live it. Talk about how to apply it. The stronger we are, the more powerful witness we become. Yes, God uses first and foremost the scriptures. But he also uses our testimony in reaching the lost. And what I see here is a very faithful church. Continue on. That's my charge to you. That's the charge to myself. That's Paul's charge to all of us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord God, thank you for this time together. Thank you for the wonderful, wonderful words of life. And may we not just fulfill the charge of sound doctrine and preaching the truth, Lord, Lord, may we do it with the affections that Paul had for Timothy, with a genuine, real love for one another that you intended for, to produce. So God, may the preaching of the Word, the sharing of God's Word from the Sunday school class to whatever venue be couched in a love for you and a love for one another. It's in Jesus' name we pray and for his sake. Amen. <laughs>